the International Air Transport Association have developed a travel app. And it's a way of consolidating all of our health information. So our COVID-19 tests, all of this data that's coming through and marrying it with our travel information. So the airlines will be able to access it rather than having to wait three hours to get these tests back, et cetera. Again, it's all about confidence building. You know, seeing me sitting on the plane that I've tested negative. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Anita Menderada about how immunity passports will change the way we travel, the role of the aviation industry in tourism, and how the World Tourism Organization is preparing to face the challenges of the pandemic's wake. There's a concept in tourism called carrying capacity. It's essentially how many tourists a given attraction can handle at once before the experience is degraded for everyone, be it through destruction of the physical, economic, or sociocultural environment. Shout out Wikipedia. And unfortunately, it's not going to be a concern for any of the 785 million people who work in travel for a while. Experts predict we won't see 1.5 billion people traveling the number who traveled in 2019, until 2024. Pre-pandemic carrying capacity, synonymous with over-tourism, became a focal point in many tourist hotspots around the world. But as tourism begins to slowly recover from this disaster, there's a lot of opportunity to learn from our mistakes so that hopefully you won't ever have to wait in line to take a photo of a volcano in Bali again. My guest today is Anita Menderada, the Special Advisor to the Secretary General of the World Tourism Organization, and her insights on the world of global tourism are unparalleled. Tourism is vital to the global economy as it employs 1 in 10 people worldwide, allowing the industry to grow faster than the economy itself every year for the last decade. Anita has visited more than 100 countries, lived all over the planet, and most importantly, is incredibly hopeful that tourism will come back better than ever. Over-tourism is one of my least favorite words, or at least it was in 2019. I think we have some time before we have to deal with that. But I do think, Ian, that importantly, over-tourism was not about too much tourism. We need tourism. Our world needs it. The economies need it. Societies, communities, and the environment needs it. Over-tourism was really about over ultimately overextending destinations and what they could open up in terms of resources, access to destinations. It was about poor management of destinations. And as a result, that led very much to bad behavior. That's really where the critical problem was. Sure. Well, we'll get into that in more detail. But first, I kind of want to get a little bit of background on you. You're the special advisor to the secretary general at the World Tourism Organization, which, as I understand it, is an organization generally responsible for promoting tourism on a global scale. And what was the first step you took down the path that eventually led to this position? Oh, it's a lovely question. Thank you. Um, the first step I took, I can only think that I was actually, I was a young child. I was blessed to grow up in a Rotary family. And when you're involved in Rotary International, the, the principles of Rotary just embed themselves in how you think, you know, the whole concept of service above self. So. My connection to the UN was started from a very young age when I was a child and I was exposed to the principles of service through professional organizations. I then went through the academic track and did my usual, went to you know, did high school in Canada, university in Canada, did my master's while I was working internationally with Unilever and always wanted to work with the UN. I, I, for me, it was always the pinnacle because it was a way of applying the blessings that I had of, you know, where I grew up, how I was raised, the education I was blessed to have, the exposure to the world. But I wanted to be able to make sure that was a full circle exposure and giving back. So as I developed my professional career, I kept close to the United Nations and created a relationship with the UNWTO. And I was very blessed, goodness, must be eight years ago, to really embed that relationship. And then Two years after that, I was asked to join on as a special advisor to the Secretary General. And it is a role that is at the pleasure of the Secretary General in office. So even when my former Secretary General 
um, moved on and a new secretary general came in, I was incredibly blessed and grateful to be asked to stay on. So it is a role I take very personally and I'm very proud of and I'm honored to serve. Well, as you mentioned, your was it your father who was part of Rotary? Correct. International? Yes. Yeah. So you're you're Indian Canadian, right? Uh, I'm actually well, exactly, but Indian Canadian from India rather than North American Indian. So my parent, my parents met when they were right. in art school in Bombay, which is now oh, Mumbai. Cool. And you said you you've lived all over the world, and looking back on some of those places, do any of them stand out as having played an especially large role in shaping? know kind of who you are today oh i like your questions um yes <laughs> absolutely i in 1991 um i went to visit my father in malawi he was there with the canadian government starting a school of architecture and i went on a three-week holiday uh, just finished up a contract at ibm and i actually got hired by unilever while i was there so a three-week holiday turned into three and a half years but importantly that was during his excellency president banda's regime And it was a time when the IMF stepped in and insisted that the dictatorship ultimately be released and a democratic process be mobilized. And so living through Mm. that, firstly, it was the sixth poorest country in the world to begin with. But then living through that change of system was, again, it was incredible. And I had a front, I had a front seat through it. Also, I was a local. Sorry, how old were you at this time? Goodness me. Oh, now you're revealing ages. I think I was 20, <laughs> I was 25 at the time. Okay. 25, 27. And um, I was a local employee. So I wasn't there as an expat. And I always used to think that if you look at the, the way the quota had devalued, I think I was one of the cost-saving projects of the organization by the time I left because, of, again, <laughs> all the IMF pressure. But I have never felt richer in my entire life because my value system changed. And it gave me such an appreciation for what I'd come from and so fundamentally rewired where I wanted to go and how I wanted to work in the world. Um, So that was critical. Then from there, I went to London for three months and then moved to South Africa, um, literally six months after liberation. So it was going from beautiful indeed. And I was very, very blessed to work directly with entities, government and business that were busy trying to make the new South Africa work. And that was remarkable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I, I look back at my life with enormous gratitude. Yeah, of course. Well, I think it'd be hard not to, but, and you know, you've had a pretty good life by objective standards and you continue to do so, especially pre pandemic traveling the world, promoting travel. I wonder what, hardship has defined your character? How does that inform your work now? Hmm. I think you were a psychologist in a former life. (laughs) I was a psychology major. (laughs) (laughs) I think in many ways, um, what hardships we've all had our own, we all carry our own, our own stories. Um, but I think one of the things that's really fundamentally shifted the way I see the world is seeing how the circumstances of birth ultimately put one on a path they never could have planned. They can never take credit for. Yeah. And as an example, I've gotten very involved in the refugee crisis with the IRC, which is an incredible organization. And it always broke my heart that it took two years before little baby Elan washed up on the beaches in Greece, having left, having left ultimately um, a a war-torn country. And everyone jumped on the hashtags and everyone sent out their messages and then they moved on. And that, that really saddened me Mm -hmm. because no one chooses to be a refugee. No one puts their child in a boat out of choice. And as they say, unless it's more dangerous on the land than in the water. So to see an entire community of people that are stigmatized for something that was completely beyond their decision-making, their circumstance, their choice of birth, I find I get quite provoked by that. And that's when I, again, I just think we all have our blessings to count. And for those who don't, you have to do something. And that's been my approach during the pandemic. I've said my business and my girls, as long as we can do something, we have to, because we can, and we're blessed to be able to. 
Yeah. And so now, now you work for yourself. You have a, a consulting company. Um, you consult on tourism and travel issues worldwide. You're, you're on the board of Treadrite, actually, which is a, an initiative run by the Travel Corporation and Brett Tolman, who I actually interviewed as well for this podcast. Stunning. Yeah, yeah. Can you paint a picture, and you, you have uh, started to, but can you paint a picture for how hard this pandemic has been on the travel industry, perhaps compared to another relevant industry, like as a point of reference? Oh, it's a great question. Um, yes. And I paint that picture with especially all the ink cartridges where the numbers are concerned being read. Um, 2020, we all started the year with a sense of, yay, you know, the new year, new decade, roaring 20s. And I always say we had no idea the teeth in that roar when we started. I remember vividly, Ian, I was in Madrid. It was for Fitur in January. Mm-hmm. And news had just started to bubble. Um, that that there was there was trouble in Wuhan, and the annual pilgrimage ultimately of Chinese New Year had not yet been cancelled in terms of travel. And mm-hmm. I remember hearing the broadcast coming out, and then the announcement came that they're stopping Chinese New Year travel. And I said mm-hmm. to my Secretary General, "Oh, good Lord, we have to be careful." Yeah. What concerned me was firstly what was happening, which was just completely unknown. But what scared me, Ian, was the stigma. Suddenly Mm. it became this problem in the East. And the country, the world has become a victim of COVID-19. Mother Nature's had a very bad year and she's Mm -hmm. been putting her temper tantrum on us all. But she's been naughty. Oh, indeed. (laughs) And, um, And so as it started to move from East to West, you could see while borders were being shut down and skies were being closed, people were being blamed. And that really broke my heart. And and those are the traveling population. I mean, you're looking at 120, 160 million outbound travelers every year. Our world needed the Chinese people being safe and secure and wanting to travel places and not being blamed for what was happening. Yeah, you can't go anywhere without seeing Chinese tourists. Oh, shocking. Yeah. And I was actually, I'm, on the, I'm blessed to be on the board of Tourism Cares. We had a board meeting in Miami in the middle of March. That was my last international trip. And we all sat around the board table and we watched President Trump make the announcement about European flights being stopped mm-hmm. coming into the U.S. And there was this feeling of, oh, good Lord. And I had to get back to London where we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, yeah. Malia, one of the board um, members who you probably know, Malia, who leads Jordan in the US. Her daughter was in Spain, only coming back on the Saturday. Mm. And while we were all thinking about what's happening, she looked up, and I'll never forget this, and she just said, my daughter is still going to be overseas. And Mm. I spent the night on the phone with my secretary general trying to call the US embassy in Spain to make sure that she and her friends could get across. It was it was real. And then from there, it was the dominoes just crashed. And at its peak, 16,000 commercial aircraft were grounded around the world. One yeah. million people in our industry were losing their job a day. Oh. 100% of restrictions on borders being closed around the world. Um, we had no idea about first waves, second waves, markets were crashing. Travel yeah. and tourism has been the worst hit sector in the world. And it's not just because of the travelers. Our industry is all about supply chains. Mm. You think that 80% of our industry is small, medium, micro enterprises. The, the supply chains of agriculture, ICT, textiles, retail, everything feeds into the travel experience. Right. So once travel and tourism stopped, travel trade, travel services, travel revenues, just bottoms. And it became a challenge between lives and livelihoods, which no one should ever, ever have to debate. So it's been right. tragic. And the mental health crisis is as severe as the physical health crisis because people yeah. are just scared to go now. Yeah. So. Well, that paints a pretty, pretty good picture. I, th- I mean, not good, but it paints a, it paints a picture. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now... Obviously, uh, we have the ability to use Zoom and things which have bridged the gap while we can't travel as much. And, you know, I've heard 
a lot of arguments that this particular disruption to the travel space will, this will be the one that significantly drives down business travel. And that was said after 9-11, but it turned out to be false. So I'm curious if you believe that would be true now. You know, I read it could be as much as 35% of business travel that doesn't come back. Yeah, I think it, what you say is really critical. And um, I, I work in diplomacy, so I'm always focusing on words. Mm-hmm. It's coming back. And as people always say, you know, we have to go back to normal. There's no going back. And there's certainly no normal. I mean, our world has uh, been yeah. rewired. And this is why I'm enjoying this conversation that it's a it's a next normal you know, now we have vaccines, we have short testing, we've got air bridges being created, then we'll get the next right. normal and the next normal. Yep. To your point, though, one of the, as always happens in a crisis, something good has to come from this. And right. what happened immediately when the world started shutting down in March was that it became very clear to governments around the world how much they need travel and tourism. For exactly the reasons I I said earlier about the employment, the um, supply chain, small businesses, the value of our sector has now become absolutely vivid. So it's being seen as part of the solution to global economic reactivation, not a part of the problem. It's just about doing it safe. And that's why my secretary general is a lovely man. And, you know, he, like others, has been tireless this year. Secretary General Polalikashvili has said that trust is a new currency. You know, it's, it's me traveling with you and our ability to travel together is not about hand sanitizers and masks. Mm-hmm. It's about me trusting you to take care of me. And so you will wear your mask and you'll use hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. The value of travel has shifted and the values of travel has shifted. When it comes to business travel, as you say, we've all been zooming away and wearing mm-hmm. casual clothes from our waist down and hoping no sure. one gets to stand up. Or just not wearing clothes from our waist down. <laughs> and that's a whole different conversation. Right. Right. Uh, but I think what's important is Zoom technology is, you know, when people ask, what am I grateful for? Thank God for the satellites in the sky. Because mm-hmm. were we not connected this year, it would have been devastating not just economically, but emotionally and, and the, the psyche of our world. Oh, absolutely. Business, business travel will come back only because I believe, A, we need it. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're mammals, we're huggers. And I do believe that, again, we need the handshakes and we need the hugs. We just need to make sure they're safe. It's been great to do this, but it shows how much the social engagement is absolutely vital. And, and any scientific journal you read now, is it's, it's brilliant reading. It's all about how we are social animals. We need more than just being able to see someone and mute them if we don't want to listen to them. I think right. the challenge with business travel is Man, going that's to such be- a, That's such a... I wonder how that will impact people in, who get back in boardrooms and have conversations. <laughs> They're exactly. going to miss the mute button. <laughs> If anyone says, can you hear me now? They're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, right. I think the concept of this next normal and what it will mean throughout the next year is really interesting compared to what everybody continues to characterize as the new normal, which I I think next normal describes it much better. That's that's really smart. Thank you. Well, we touched on this at the beginning, switching gears a little bit. But how do you think social media has affected the pre-pandemic over tourism problem? And then I kind of have some, I have some follow-up questions depending on how you answer that. Oh dear. I, I wish Freud could come back from the dead just for a week <laughs> because I think he would have a blast analyzing social media. Social media is, is to me, it's never been the problem. It's the usage that's always been the challenge, whether it's misinformation, unfortunate sound bites, but it's also a really good rallying vehicle. We've seen how it's kept people connected and feeling a part of something bigger during this past year. The over-tourism debate was a really unfortunate one. I think it's been quite sad because it's actually, it's about, it's not about too many tourists. It's about too little management of tourism, Mm. whether it's space, resources, but ultimately as well, it's about bad management, but also bad manners. Just because I have a passport, a cell phone, an airline ticket, and a credit card does not mean I can walk into your house without knocking. There is nothing that entitles a tourist to break 
just those rules that our parents taught us when we were growing up. Mm. I'm a firm believer in that. So the industry was doing incredible things to manage over tourism or uh, overcrowding. Businesses were doing what they could. What about the travelers? To me, it's, this is our privilege. It's yes, it's mobility is a human right, but it's a privilege that we're able to travel. And unless we respect the people who call these places home, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Pretty simplistic about that. Yeah. Well, that's well said. What are, what are some of the most impactful habits that travelers can adopt as we head into a totally different kind of travel environment? You know, you're going to have people going out now who haven't traveled for a year or, or more. And, um, you know, that they're going to have their rusty travel skills or, or have lost a lot of their travel skills altogether. So what, what behaviors would you like to see people start to incorporate more? What comes to mind immediately is two things. Firstly, respect that this is someone else's home. You know, whether it's an attraction, it's a, it's a destination, it's a beach, whatever. We are guests and we are blessed to be guests. It is not, as I said earlier, it's not entitlement. So I think just remembering the basics of respect and gratitude are really, really important in tourism in the next world. Secondly, I think what's also linked to that is respecting the impact we have on other places, positive Mm -hmm. and negative. So I always think in the word community has been so interesting before 2020, the word community was about people on our social media and Uh we created these intangible communities. Right. Suddenly we became conscious of the fact that in these lockdowns, all these little grocers and retailers and shops around us that were people we met every day, they're gone. And the, the, the feeling of responsibility towards community has been highly elevated. And I think that's a really hopefully strong legacy coming out of COVID-19 that wherever we go, do what we can to help whoever we can. It's, it's the little things we buy. It's the little conversations we have and critically always, always, always remember eye contact. Hmm. People are there for a reason. People wear name tags for a reason. Call them by their name. I just think that's a really fundamental rule. But again, it's what our parents taught us when we were little people. We just somehow forgot it along the way. Yeah. I think in the long term, that makes complete sense. In the short term, when people are taking their first or their second trip uh, after the pandemic, do you think that a immunity passport has the potential to be widespread? And if so, what would that look like? Another really good question. Um, the immunity passport's been discussed, health passports, et cetera. IATA is just uh, launching actually its travel app, its whole travel pass, which is ultimately right. an app. And for, for people who aren't familiar with IATA, could you just explain briefly what? My apologies. No we worries. talk in acronyms. IATA is the International Air Transport Association, which is the giant body that basically pulls together all of the international airlines. So it covers the world of aviation. It handles the transactions between them. So that is the governing body that from a private sector perspective is a champion of all of the airlines working together as one global force to keep the world moving. Mm -hmm. On the government side is ICAO, which is the UN entity, but this is the private sector side. Mm -hmm. So IATA, which importantly does not anticipate we're going to have 2019 rates of air travel momentum until 2024. So we Mm -hmm. have another three full years to build, which is scary. Um, They have developed a travel app, which is a, it's called a travel pass. They'll be launching it literally in a matter of a few weeks. It's just been released and it's a way of consolidating all of our health information. So our COVID-19 tests, all of this data that's coming through and marrying it with our travel information that allows for brilliant. It's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. It's been done with ICAO, with the WHO, with the CDC. So it's the first time our industry as a whole, whether it's W, you know, UNWTO, WHO, ICAO, IATA, WTTC have all been working together and cross pollinating transport, tourism, trade, and health. It's fantastic. Nice. 
This travel pass will carry all of our information, which will make the ease of movement much more confident because we'll know what our travel, our health status is. Yes. Much swifter because you'll have all the information with you. So the airlines will be able to access it rather than having to wait three hours to get these tests back, et cetera. It's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's all about confidence building. You know, seeing me sitting on the plane that I've tested negative. Yeah. So it's, it's all of those subtleties. Um, and it's, it's happening. It's the COVID-19 has kickstarted technology for us. All these things we wanted to do, but didn't have time to do. Uh, we've had the time and we have the reason. So yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled about IATA's announcement. And I know from a UNWTO perspective, we are so excited about all of these developments taking place that are bringing health and wellness and well-being alongside travel, which is linked to health and wellness, alongside trade, alongside transport systems. It's fabulous. Global pandemic aside, I can see a lot of different use cases why something like that could be useful. I think some people I can see being a little skeptical from a private data privacy standpoint, but there's always going to be those people. And I think the vast majority of the traveling public will be excited about something like that existing. This is a question that I'm, I'm trying to find a good answer. It's, it's a tough question. How do you get people, particularly in the U.S., who, who aren't interested in travel to go and do it? I mean, very few, very small percentage of the population even has a passport and a very small percentage of that group even uses them. And, and if you take out Canada and Mexico travel, it's, it's significantly smaller. So I'm kind of obsessed with trying to figure out how to make that number bigger. And I'm curious where you would start. Hmm. Because of COVID-19, we have to start at the beginning. Um, and I think that even when we talk about travel, is it you know, travel for business, travel for a holiday, travel for whatever reason? When COVID-19 hit and we started talking about travel coming back, travel coming back, I was very clear that it's going to be heart before holiday. Because with the world shutting down so quickly, there were, there were literally 6 million people were dislocated. IATA and the airlines had to help 6 million people find their way home again. Like repatriated people. Exactly. Exactly. Whoa. And this is where, if you think about it, as I said, you know, 16,000 aircraft were grounded. Unless you were being repatriated, a medical worker being shipped someone or medical supplies, there was no flights going. That's crazy. That's okay. 6 million people. 6 million people. A couple of years ago, and I'm not entirely sure that this statistic is accurate, but I read that at any given moment, a quarter million people are in planes in the sky. Mm. So I, I guess to consider the, the challenge it would be to move six million people in the midst of a pandemic grounding airplanes, when that's the, that's the, that's the baseline, 250,000 people, and you have to move six million. Oh my gosh. Well, if you think about it, I mean, this is what's fascinating. Even just the travel, the tour, uh, you were speaking, talking about Brett earlier and yeah. Brett Tolman. If you think about Trafalgar, Contiki, Uniworld, Lion World, all of these different brands, they had people on tours. They had yeah. people around the world. Think of all the travel companies in the world, travel brands, and say they each had 10,000 tourists. Right. It's just staggering that the first thing they had to do was get find their people, get them home somehow. And right. this is when borders were closing within 72 hours. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So, and as a result, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. I've missed weddings this year. I've missed funerals. My father's 85th birthday. My, you know, my, mm. my best friend lost her husband. We've, my partner, he lives in Los Angeles. I'm in London. I haven't seen yeah. him since March. Well, I've seen him, but I haven't hugged him since March because yeah, it's all been on yeah. the screen. So heart before holiday is to me the motivation to start people traveling that might not have thought of traveling before because everyone's mm. been kept apart. In that heart is the motivation for travel. Slowly, people are going to want to get out there because also people are sick of where they've been for the last nine months. They're oh, dying yeah. to get out. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> I heard someone say recently that bucket lists have become to do lists. And I thought, I really ah, like that. Yeah. I think it's great. Be That's really cool. Because it's a matter of 
It's the same equation of, I always say like women, uh, sorry, I don't think it applies to men, but women, when we go on diets over Christmas and New Year's, you know, New Year's counts mm-hmm. like, great, we're going to stop dieting or start dieting. By day five or six, when you're really grumpy and hungry, you know exactly what the first thing is you're going to eat when you break that diet. <laughs> I think it's the same with travel. We've all been starved of just the ability to go somewhere. Now it's a matter of, okay, I'm doing that trip to Bali. I'm doing that right. trip to the Taj Mahal. I'm going to Cape Town because I yeah. haven't. And, and when people worry about, will people still spend? Different people, different economic scenarios and situations now. But like with retail, a lot of people have not spent for the entire year. So yeah. their argument is, I deserve it. I do not right. agree with the title revenge travel. I'm sure you've heard about that. Yeah, I don't this, like that term either. Yeah, it's nasty. The only revenge is on Mother Nature. <laughs> it's not about the travel. Right. Um, but the I think because I can is going to become a very powerful motivator for travel as yeah. soon as we can. That's uh, yeah, that's great. I know I am so excited to <laughs> to go anywhere else. Where is your first list? Where's on the list? If you can say. Oh boy. You know, I find myself flip-flopping between being really excited about visiting a new place first mm-hmm. and just wanting to kind of go back to the classics, you know, the greatest hits and have another one of those experiences that is, is always great. And I, and I, not necessarily Mexico or something like that. You know, I've been to Turkey several times and I just absolutely love going there. And so part of me just kind of wants to, you know, get the, the boys back, get the band back together, you know, and do a trip like that. But of course the, the bucket list is never ending and there's so many places I want to go as well. So I, I do have a trip booked to Japan. Ah, So lovely that, that I hope will be, a big one, but that's like I said, November. So hopefully before then, uh, I'm out there in the world that's as well. Really, How about well, you? Goodness me! Well, there'll be the heart to Los trip. Angeles. You need to see your uh, your significant other. Indeed. Well, actually, I get to see him next week because we're both meeting up in Cape Town for the end of the year. Um, so I should I say still- I, I actually I know who at Mr. Al. I can <laughs> I can cut Busted. this out if you prefer not to. Uh, <laughs> no, it's- I don't mind. He's going to get in trouble. He's going to give you <laughs> trouble now. <laughs> Indeed, it is Al. Um, I still have my flat in Cape Town, even though I'm living in London. So we're going to go spend some time in Cape Town. Um, but to your point about you know where next, I want to see my family. I can't go back to Canada because my father's um, taking care of his his companion who's just had eye surgery. So I can't mm-hmm. go near them anyway. But um, so when I can, I'll see him. But when we go back to South Africa, I said to Al, I just said, it's been a hectic year. It's been intense. My business is an anxiety sponge for my clients, which I am uh-huh. honored to do. I just want to watch an animal breathe. So we're going to Kruger for three nights. And I just, oh, you know nice. that feeling, Ian, when you just, you just watch a zebra breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. I just want to watch an animal breathe. And just, and swim. I'm dying to swim. I'm a water baby and I haven't swam all year. (laughs) Boy, Africa and South Africa are some of my favorites as well. So that'll be a nice, that'll be quite the break. I want to get into aviation because I think uh, it seems like it's something you're really passionate about. And obviously it's inextricably linked with travel, something I, I love as well. So I want to, I want to talk about the aviation angle. So just to start out, what's the process like of trying to attract an airline to begin service to a new destination. Obviously, like you're just talking about going to um, Cape Town, you know, United Airlines launched a direct flight from Newark and that's huge for South Africa. Um, so I'm curious, like what what goes into the process of getting that off the, getting that flight off the ground? At the end of the day, it comes down to the ground and, and you're picking back on that point about all the aircraft is really important. I, I, I believe, and I stand to be corrected, but I think this stat that IATA gave was that every single second of this pandemic, the airline industry has lost $3 million. Every single second. So the oh. only thing that's going to get airlines back in the air is going to be demand. And there needs to be consistent demand, which means 
the 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 back and forth will be occupied, you know, 60, 70% if they're lucky. And that'd be, that'd be very lucky. Um, there needs to be the ability to be able to travel also filling up the bellies of the plane, because a lot of the revenue generation comes from the trade, not just the travel. There needs to be stability and regulations because to put a new air route in place and then suddenly the government shut the borders and goes country goes into lockdown. You see immediately what happens. I mean, the, the issues of quarantines, the airlines have made it very clear, whether it's IATA, ICAO, any of the acronyms, that if you put a quarantine in place, you might as well just put a travel advisory in a block. Yeah. Because yeah, it's 28 days, basically. Exactly. That somebody has to dedicate to that. To the trip. And, and that's the cost of travel now. It's not money anymore. It's time. No. Which is and there's no there's no way for tourism to start to rebuild while that kind of a restriction is in place. It seems exactly. to me, at least, yeah. And so, even to your point, even with the vaccine coming out, the deal breaker for travel in the future is not the vaccine; it's actually the quick testing. Mm, because you've sure. got what you know in some countries, the U.S., the U.K., fifty percent of people plus don't want to take the vaccine in the first rounds, so. How do we keep that going? So it's very much demand-based in terms of, um, again, travel volumes, trade, the incentivization that comes from governments. So sadly, governments don't have the funds now to incentivize. Um, yes. We need to make sure the regulations are stable so that the airline, the, the routes are not suddenly canceled and there's repatriation required. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is um, route length. So you've got a lot more regional travel, whether it's in the Schengen zone, in ASEAN, the U.S. market you can see has mobilized. China's been remobilized. And that's critical. The air bridges, the corridors that are being created. So whether it's from New York to London Heathrow, I think um, there was one being started from the U.S. to Rome recently. Those little corridors to limit the the risk of exposure. But it's it's all, we're living... I really think we're living the great hypothesis and yeah. people need to be gracious in recognizing we're doing the best we can. We didn't, no one's ever, the only, the only person I ever knew who talked about the risk of a pandemic, who I think has been the classiest person this entire year is Bill Gates. Cause he mentioned this five years ago and he has never Ian once said, I told you so. He's never. And I think that that's that's pretty classy. Yeah, it is. That's uh, good, too, because what good would that do? <laughs> Indeed. Exactly. He's obviously smart enough to see that. Exactly. I looked through your your Twitter and I was kind of familiarizing myself with what you've been up to. And you, I noticed you had a lot of commentary on airport experiences globally. So uh, how big of a factor is a city's airport in kind of throttling tourism? And what are some... What are some of the airports that do this really well or some that really need to improve? I, I love it from the point of view of um, airports are in many ways retail centers, social hubs that happen to have a lot of air bridges attached to them. And those are the airports that get it right. So airports that recognize they are a contact point for global connectivity that happens to have aircraft as part of that model, it's the whole aerotropolis design in using mm-hmm. an airport to actually stimulate economic activity, social activity, and environmental protection as well. So the ones that have done it right, we know the examples of, for instance, um, I still think Dubai is spectacular. Emirates, they've always said those are marketing and development vehicles for Dubai and the UAE. So it's using it as a stimulus but doing yeah. it in a way that has an identity. It's not simply an, an industrial base. Yeah. So um, I always loved when I'd get, I was in transit. When I used to live in Cape Town, I'd use Emirates as my primary carrier and I'd have a lot of mm-hmm. transit in Dubai. Yeah, they had of one of the best spas in the world. The, yeah. the retail was amazing. The lounges were amazing. Right. It was, it was almost a disappointment when the connection was too quick. Because you uh-huh. think, I know the feeling. <laughs> Yeah, and I am actually uh, ashamed to say I've never flown Emirates in my frequent really? flying uh, resume. That That is one airline, a, a big omission. Spectacular. Uh, yeah, I hear I hear very good things, of course. What's, what's one big but realistic idea you would pitch an airline to make the flying experience better? 
oh dear, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> in this brave new world. I suppose you don't necessarily need to consider the pandemic or you could ignore it if you choose. Indeed. I think there's a huge opportunity because it's, it's again, I, I always view airlines as an extension of the destination, especially when it's obviously a flag carrier or a, um, um, ultimately the national airline. Yeah. The airlines are the airlines and airports are the perfect marketing vehicles for destinations because you literally have a captive audience. And I've always felt that one of the opportunities wasted in an aircraft is how the in-flight entertainment doesn't leverage more engagingly content around the destination. Mm. So you might have little documentaries, you might have the little promo bits, but there's There are ways to, especially in our world where people want to, they don't want to just have experiences anymore. They want to understand, they want to contribute, they want to participate. There are ways in which the in-flight entertainment, the airline, the airport communication, the lounges can be utilized as sensitization vehicles. So for instance, hypothetically, you're flying from your base where? I'm in San Diego. You're in San Diego. Oh, I thought you were on the East Coast for some reason. You're in San Diego. You're going to fly from LAX to Dubai International, from Dubai International to somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You're sitting on the aircraft. You've got all this time. I think I do admit, admit, though, that I always loved when I flew from Dubai to LA because you'd leave Dubai and then you fly over Iran. Mm-hmm. And um, they have a beautiful city name in Iran, which is Shiraz, which I thought was ironic considering that it's a dry country. But you fly <laughs> over Iran, you, think, <laughs> you go over the North Pole, and it's impossible not looking out the window for Santa because you've got this gorgeous ice cap. <laughs> stunning. He's out there somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> Even if it's the middle of July, he's out there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. But if you were to be able to sit on the aircraft and while you're flying, Get some immersion into local language. What are the customs that you say? What are some of the local nuances? What are some of the sensitivities of the do's and the don'ts? There are ways to utilize air, airlines and aircraft as almost cultural immersion vehicles, which yeah. I think would be a huge reflection as well of the airline brand and its value. Yeah. Would take away a lot of the, ah, I got a 15 hour flight actually creates more meaning. Give you the opportunity to learn. Exactly. And it's a, it's a huge source of inspiration for when people get there. Yeah. I just think that could be such a fun way of, so if the destinations and the NTOs work more closely with the airlines and the airports, there are ways of making that journey experience start long before they yeah. even touch the other side. But I've always thought that there's a massive opportunity there. And that's that's really cool. And breaking prejudice just by people listening and absorbing. And again, they're captive. Where are they going to go? <laughs> so, yeah, right. I read that some of your best advice to travelers is to always say thank you in the local yeah. language, which I thought to be, that's really profoundly awesome advice. And it's so simple. What went into that particular piece of advice becoming your go-to I think it goes back to, again, growing up in that rotary system. But when I think of it now, I'm I'm doing quite a bit of work in the Middle East. I'm very blessed to be um, on one of the board advisory boards of a mega project in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And Mm. it's the whole principle of just, I'm learning Arabic now. The only reason why is just to embed respect. Yeah. Now, if you want to get closer, when I go, I still wear my abaya. Am I permitted to run around in my jeans? Yes. But when I'm with the Bedouin communities, these are local communities. I'm going to respect this as their home. That's a great example that Anita is setting. So for you listeners, take note. Do <laughs> as you. the locals do. Indeed. I want to move a little bit to, to talk about loyalty programs for airlines and hotels, because that's, that's ultimately a piece of this podcast that I like to talk with people about. And I think it ties into the discussions we've been having in a kind of interesting way. It's a little bit antithetical to some of the, I would imagine, missions of the WTO. Because you've got, on one hand, the programs do allow a lot of people to travel who wouldn't otherwise, you know, by subsidizing flights and hotel stays, particularly in luxurious ways, booking business class flights or first class flights, at least that's how I like to use my miles. But because of the nature 
of these programs, I'm not sure that they always encourage the right kind of tourism. And how do you think loyalty programs could improve at bringing people out, out into the world and instead of just into these resorts and far off places, actually into these communities as well? Because I think a lot of a lot of the people who kind of partake in this, and I've certainly been guilty myself, find themselves at a five-star resort in a far-off place, but they never leave. They never really get that experience. Indeed. They stay in the bubble. Right. And I, I love the way you're asking the question because my immediate thought was, how do you define loyalty? Hmm. And because I think to your point, loyalty programs ultimately became about points equal currency. And it didn't really matter what the airline was. It was more, I'm loyal to my, my bank account of air miles. That really was part of motivation. What yeah. I found interesting now is that A, they've stretched their terms, which has been very gracious because otherwise we'd all would be back on tier zero yeah, for this last yes. year. Yes, um, thank God. But I've, I've just experienced in the last 72 hours a really interesting demonstration of loyalty um, with my preferred carrier at present, which is BA. And loyalty is actually about protection, not just protection of the miles, but I have received four emails saying, please be sure you know what's required when you land. Please check here for what the requirements are for the country you're traveling to. Please make sure you've got your travel insurance in place. I didn't know I needed to fill out a landing form, health form for South Africa. I found out through mm. the BA email that they sent me. Oh, very good. And, and so the loyalty is protecting you to have that trip that you've been hoping for, wherever yeah. you're sitting on the plane. Yeah. And, and so that's why I think COVID-19 has redefined a lot of words. Loyalty is one of them because loyalty is now about protection, not not you give us all this money, so great. Yeah. They were amazing <laughs> in when I called them, because of course I was cashing in vouchers, not points, because all the trips that were canceled. Right, of course. The agent was fantastic. We were on for 40 minutes, only because I kept talking to her about being a, a, an agent with BA. <laughs> and all of the conditions of, if something goes wrong, don't worry. If something goes wrong, don't worry. You know, you yeah. can get the refund. What Really smart. So I think what, has also been interesting is in the in the in the year we've been grounded it's been interesting to see how different airlines have continued to communicate about travel and keeping the excitement building by yeah. taking people to destinations even though they're grounded i thought that yeah. was really stunning so yeah. the loyalty came to we know you've got points we know we're going to end up <laughs> having everyone cash them in as soon as they can yeah. fly right and that's okay because their loyalty commitment is to rekindling the confidence and the love of travel, regardless of what the bank account is. They know yeah. they're losing, yeah. but they've accepted right. that as an opportunity cost. So I think the word loyalty has been redefined the way sustainability has been redefined. There's been a lot of shifting of language this year, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah. A couple quick questions just about your flying experience. Approximately how many miles did you fly last year? Oh my goodness me. Um, what status tier did you get to with British Airways? Maybe that will uh, help us get to the answer quicker. Um, you they, got a lot of upgrades, Anita, <laughs> I gotta say. You're, you're used to the pointy end of the plane. I, 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 I'm blessed to have a lot of pajamas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good way to put that. Um, Lots of tiny toothpaste cartridges as well. <laughs> exactly. Well, now that it's funny, because now that you've revealed, you know that Al's my 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 heart partner on in LA. It's terrible when he and I travel together because we both have this all these little kits and miniatures of everything. Nothing is grown-up size, it's all child size. Because <laughs> for all of the amenity kits. Yeah. But I but I have better pajamas. Um BA was they just introduced actually a level above gold. Mm-hmm. But they've got this gold plus, this gold guest. I'm not sure what, anyway, I'm up there. Um, okay. But nice. you know what I found interesting about that, about status? And it's same with Emirates, BA, and KLM, which is obviously um, Flying Blue. Yep. Or uh, blah, whatever. Uh, Sky yeah. Team. Sky Team. Yes, right. Those programs demonstrate that they're great when things go well. They are outstanding when things go wrong outstanding hmm. and i love that ba has those little golden tickets if you want to see a cabin attendant cry give them a golden ticket 
Oh, oh. Can you explain what this is? I, I've oh. heard of this, but I, I would love to hear your experience with it. It's this little teeny tiny card, that little card that British Airways sends you, and it's got your number on the back of it. So they're all personalized. They've got your name and number on the, on the card. And if you ever come across a cabinet, anyone from the airline who Lounge has done something, workers, anyone, agent. I've given it to a ticketing agent. I gave it to a, a boarding gate attendant, someone who just does something that you feel is absolutely above and beyond. You literally give them the ticket. You don't even need their name. Hmm. You just hand it to them. They, they have your it. details. Exactly. Because they've got your ah. personal card. And I asked one once because I, I, there, I was in Toronto. I was just seeing my family and our flight got delayed for some technical problem. And the lad literally came to the lounge and said to us all, stay there. Just stay in the lounge. I'll let you know. So ah. I'm walking around and I'm, and he came back and he said, and about, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours later, he came and I went to the gate and he said, no, no, I'm telling you, go stay in the lounge. I'll let you know. And it wasn't a push off. Yeah. Anyways, I go back to the lounge. He shows up and he says, I just want to say, have another glass of champagne. When you're finished, come to the gate. We'll be ready to board. Hmm. And so he went back and clearly he'd had hundreds of people shouting at him for the flight being late. Yeah, of course. And I went to the gate and I boarded. He was at the gate and I gave my boarding pass. He got me on the flight and I wished and I thanked him very much. And when I got onto the plane, I said to the woman at the door, please, can you go and get the flight controller for me? He showed up at the end of the air bridge. I'm at the door of the flight. And I just said to you, I said, I don't know who you are. I just want to say thank you. And I handed this to him. I promise you, Ian, he had tears in his eyes. Yeah. He just, I think he just felt so beat up by everyone as well. Right, right. He didn't expect the credit, but that goes back to their managers and BA does honor them in whatever way they feel right. But it's also, they get exposed to their colleagues of having received it. Yeah. And it's just, it's glorious. I my, think it's my understanding such- is that those kinds of programs are not only very, very well received by the employees, but um, you know, it's great for their own career development within the airline. And it's, it's a great gesture. One thing I, I, I don't know if any of the airlines that I fly regularly have that kind of golden ticket option. That's really cool that BA does that. I, you can usually ask on board to kind of fill out a, uh, commendation form. Yes. And I've done that sometimes. I do recommend people do that if they get great service. That's really cool though. And even on social media, I find I don't ever, if I have a criticism to make, I'll send a private message through Twitter. But when things go right, there's nothing to stop us from tweeting out. I would argue that, you know, the critical mass of tweets for airlines are usually them getting hammered. And every time I have written something just to say, thank you, or yay, you're taking me home. Right. I always get a response back from someone from the airline and you can hear that the surprise and the yeah, appreciation. Right. Yeah, no kidding. How do you like to use your miles? Um, I use my miles admittedly for more regional travel. So long mm. haul, I pay full cash. I do. I do the honors. Um, but because they're easier, they're much easier to redeem when it's local or regional flights. So if I'm going to Madrid to UNWTO headquarters, to Geneva, to IATA, I'll, I'll use that for that purpose. It's fabulous because it's quick redemption, easy to use. Um, or I often donate the flight, the points back. So for instance, right now, they've got the whole Christmas time, donate back to BA, which will pass on the miles to an aid organization, yeah. crisis response, et cetera. Because again, it's currency. Yeah, it, it yeah. Ultimately, it's currency. And yourself? Well, I certainly bill myself as somebody who tries to get the most out of their miles. So I definitely save them for the most lavish uh, seats and suites uh, that I can get. And I'm pretty obsessed with trying to get the best redemption <laughs> that I can. So I am very committed to that and cut, you know, 16 credit cards and play the whole game as pretty much as in depth as you can. Although this you- year's... Go ahead. It's, some, it's someone like you who keeps us savvy because you you end up finding out all the little tricks that, that you then very kindly pass on. Because yes. I know that um, I'm quite sure you've had contact. I, I know you have with Richard Quest, who I'm blessed to work with on the CNN side. Yep. And it becomes so competitive, especially when it's at the <laughs> end of that fulfillment year and people yep. are racing to save their tears. Yeah. 
Yeah, Richard is uh, great in that respect. His commentary on this is really funny. So I do a segment on this podcast called Explain That Gram, where I pick Mm -hmm. a photo from guests' Instagram, and then I ask them, you know, what's the story behind this? Oh, dear. (laughs) Unless I totally missed uh, on my research. You don't appear to be much of an Instagrammer, but you're big on on tweeting. Correct. So luckily, I think the, the segment is pretty analogous to different social platforms. So I picked your Twitter here. So... You had this photo, you're looking like straight down the runway and your, your caption is, what is it about runways? Now you'll be able to find the link to the photo I'm Anita and I are discussing in the description of the podcast. So if you want to familiarize yourself with it. So I was actually just curious, like, what is it about runways? Because I feel the same thing. That moment just before you're, you're raring to go uh, is like such an exciting thing. Especially when the engines, you can feel them surging. And there's this, yay, we're going. I think what, what I love with that as well is that with those runway shots, I love when you get the right angle and you can see the arrow. Yeah. I think that, especially at night, and you can just see that. It's just this, oh my goodness, I'm about to go out in the world. There's just yeah. this, I love, I mean, people used to always say to me, you know, ah, how do you handle all the travel? And I've always said, you know, if ever I complain about my travels, take my passport away. We hmm. are so blessed Ian to do what we do even if we've been grounded we've been able to do what we do and we've seen the world and we've realized just how every single second is just even if it scares the kajibis out of you it's so exciting every Mm -hmm. time we take off and you feel your push back that little bit into your seat there's just um oh my god something exciting is about to I just love it. You got me daydreaming about that feeling that I haven't had that much this year. But to that point, and I know we're, we're, we're close to wrap up. I want to thank you, Ian, because you've, you've been a real champion of our industry. You know, whether it's through your air miles, through your podcast, through your opening up the world, through your sharing other people with, with your audiences, with, you know, bringing people like myself on, you've, you've kept the fire of, travel alive because you've kept the blessing of travel alive this year even before everything else you've done so i genuinely want to thank you for that because we need you we Mm -hmm. need you in our travel world well i appreciate that i do hope that people through the content i produce and and that of others like me that they stay motivated to travel and keep that fire burning as you said um when you think back about Man, I mean, all the, pl- how many countries have you been to? I did one of those maps where you actually count it and it was in excess of a hundred. I think it was about 128. Wow. Last, wow. So when you, when you think back to all, all the countries you've been to, all the, the, man, the people you've met, the kinds of tourism you've helped promote, what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe it has on the world? Hmm. Um, what impact it's had on me? I, I, I go with the, the words that come to my head, humility and honor. I think, I think, I think travel is an incredible source of humility because it forces one to not just experience and understand the world. It forces you to understand yourself. I think that's a really big part of it. And I think that's part of the, the impact it's had on the world. Oh, I just, this is why I love what I do. Was why I love, love, love what I do. Because travel's not just about the tourists. It's for people who, for the billions of people who will never travel, but are traveled to, it gives them a sense of identity, a sense of pride, a sense of purpose, a sense of inclusion. 1.8 billion people around the world are traveling to discover somewhere and someone new and i just think that's glorious i think it's glorious that that it is it is that it is the visited that can benefit exponentially more than the visitor as long as the visitor always maintains that respect and sense of blessing i think travel is one of the greatest forces of nature and, and it's we say that you know travel as a vehicle for peace, it's on a spectrum. It develops awareness, understanding, respect, and then as a result, 
we find out we're all the same and that's why we don't want to hurt one another. I think this is one of the most remarkable industries in the world. That's Anita Menderada. You can find her on Twitter at Anita Menderada. And earlier this year, Anita was awarded the most influential woman leader in the tourism industry at the global MICE and luxury travel conference in Mumbai. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other people find these episodes. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimace, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.